It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And Father, we just humbly ask that by the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would just help us now to receive from the truth of your word what it is that you want to say to each and every one of us here this morning. Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts, our minds, that you'd take away the distractions, and that you would allow us to just hear what it is that you want to say to us personally this morning. Bless your word, we pray now, that we might hear from your spirit and his ministry speaking to our hearts, and we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, when someone has a reputation for reliability and kind of just always coming through, No matter what the situation, the difficulty, or the circumstances, we might say of a person like that, that guy always delivers. Now, in light of that, despite how it looks or what happens, I want to say God always delivers. God always delivers. It does not matter the situation, the circumstance, in his time and in his way, he always brings about what is best in the big picture. Now, in connection to that, let me just say, as God works, he also, however, may accomplish his purposes in unusual ways. In things that we may not expect to come to pass, God may actually be working, though it may not be our preference or the way we think that God should or might work. And sometimes God does things a little different than we expect them to happen. And in this passage before us this morning, which gives to us the accurate historical narrative of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ when he came into this world, Things are happening, but probably not in a way you might expect them to be taking place. God is working. God is delivering on a promise of hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet the way he is doing it is quite unique and interesting. God's accomplishing his plan, but not in the way the natural mind might expect it to come to pass. But nonetheless, God is clearly at work. And I think it reminds us that even when life, let's say, may look messy, And circumstances may not be what we prefer, or maybe it's harder or more difficult than we wish it was. God is still in control, and God is still able in the midst of those things to ultimately bring about what is best. Look with me in verse 1 as our text begins. It tells us, sort of giving us the setting and the backdrop, verse 1 of chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days. In those days, in other words, the purposes of God had planned for all of eternity 
a, a purpose, something that was on his divine agenda for all of eternity and predicted in order to save mankind from the punishment of sin is now coming to its fulfillment. That's why it tells us there in verse 1, it came to pass. Something was finally coming to pass. It came to pass in, notice, those days. So the writer there is referring back to the setting historically, the events leading up to what's recorded here in Luke chapter 2. And let me just, if I could, reacquaint you or remind you or fill you in if you're not familiar with what those days would be referring to. First of all, we know from Luke chapter 1, the Virgin Mary had just been informed by an angelic visitor that she, apart from any relationship or, or any experience with a man, she was not married yet, but apart from that, she had been chosen to give birth to God's promised Savior. You can read about that in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. Mary was a godly young virgin woman who was engaged to a man named Joseph at this time. And she receives this angelic visitation as informed that by a miracle of God, she was going to conceive a baby within her womb. That God supernaturally was going to deposit the life of his son into her womb and she was going to be divinely impregnated by a miracle of God as God put the life of his son in her human body so that she could then give birth to the human life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus being the eternal son of God, always existent, would now take upon himself a second nature, a human nature, so that he might be fully God and fully man simultaneously in touch with divinity and in touch at the same time completely with humanity, the perfect mediator between the two, allowing God to be among us for a time in the person of his son, Jesus. But more than that, allowing Jesus himself in who he was and what he did to be the bridge to connect humanity back to God, to help mankind who had fallen into sin to be reconciled back into relationship with God who loved them and wanted him to be with them eternally mary after receiving this message hearing this incredible news we're told then departs and goes and visits her relatives for a short season of time her relative elizabeth and then upon returning after about a three-month stint it tells us in matthew chapter one in that account it says that when mary comes back after having been away for a few months coming back it says at that point she was then found to be with child and very interesting word that's used there she was found to be with child the word found literally indicates to discover by observation now think this through with me what happens she receives this angelic visitation and message from god by the power of the miracle of god she conceives the life of the lord jesus christ within her womb she then departs, goes away for a few months, and she comes back to her hometown a few months later, and now she's showing. She's found by observation very clearly to be pregnant at this point in time. Naturally, the speculation and the questions would begin to arise from human perception. People were no different then than they are now. You can imagine as she comes back, the starers in the synagogue people in the community isn't that mary she seemed like such a godly young woman what a scandal isn't she betrothed to joseph 
do you think Joseph could be responsible for that? Well, she had been away from Joseph for months and months on end. And so this whole scandalous thing begins to happen where it appears she's been unfaithful and immoral. Imagine the stares and the the conversations. Imagine how shamefaced some people found out later on that when they were severely criticizing someone within their worship gathering to realize that they were utterly wrong of their criticisms because God was doing something and had no right criticizing that poor pregnant girl for what was going on in her life. Boy, oftentimes we can be real fools when we criticize a little too harshly. And so here, imagine this scandalous event. She comes back. Even Joseph, who knows he's not the father, is contemplating in his mind what does he do with his betrothed wife, the woman he's engaged to. He's contemplating getting a divorce from her because it looks as if she's been unfaithful in her actions or something has happened. It's clear that she's pregnant. Well, it tells us this in Matthew 1. It says, while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, reminding him of his lineage, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. So after a time of struggling himself, God now intervenes and he speaks directly to Joseph. And he lets Joseph know, Joseph, despite what this looks like, here's exactly what's going on. He reminds Joseph of his family line, that the Messiah would come through the family line of David. He lets Joseph in on this reality. Look, Mary is pregnant by a miraculous work of the Spirit of God because the eternal Son of God has been put within her womb so that she might give birth to him. And and he's reminded of the prophecy from Isaiah 7, from 700 years ago when God said that when he brought the Savior into the world— that a virgin would miraculously conceive a child by a miracle and that that child would actually end up being God with us, God among humanity. And that Joseph was to give that child the name Jesus for he had come to save his people from their sins. So now all of this is becoming clear to Joseph as he's reminded that Jesus had to be born in this way, born of a virgin, so that he might be born without a sin nature as we all have as human beings. So that Jesus may then live a sinless life and be the perfect substitute for mankind to live a sinless life to satisfy the righteous requirement of God in heaven among humanity, and at the same time then to be the mediator for sinful humanity to take all the punishment for our sins as he stood in our place dying upon the cross. Jesus was born not just to live, Jesus was born to die, to die for the sin of the world. And so Mary and Joseph now at this point, they understand what God's doing, not everyone else does, and they sense what God intends for them as a couple. They have been selected to be the human parents, if you would, the stewards of the son of God who's been sent into this world to bring salvation for mankind. Quite a huge responsibility for this young, newly married couple who is going to be questioned and probably criticized. I mean, the whole thing just looks like a scandal. 
It looks like something very difficult to swallow could actually be God's doing, and they have to undertake this responsibility that seemed far above their ability. But yet they were told, with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible with God's involvement. So we're told with that backdrop, it was in those days, as these things were coming to pass, verse 1, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And it says this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went, verse 3, to be registered, every one to his own city. So Luke records for us here the historical events that took place on earth in relationship to Jesus's birth and their historical events happening in time. But more than that, they are actually divinely directed events that are working to fulfill heaven's plan. God is coordinating these things in the midst of this. It tells us it happened, verse 1, in the, the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, we know historically this man referred to here was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He was highly favored by Julius Caesar. And not too long after, Julius Caesar himself was murdered, and then Mark Anthony took his own life. It created the opportune time for this man to then arise to the highest position in that time in the known world, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And notice, at this point, it may have appeared that Caesar was directing and ruling the known world, but God was ultimately still in charge and actually working out all things according to his perfect divine plans in the end. It tells us that it was during this time that Caesar Augustus, it says, verse 1, issues a decree that all the world should be registered. Now keep in mind, at this time historically, Rome had governmental rule over most of the territory and especially Palestine, the area we know as kind of Israel today. And typically, about every 14 years or so, to keep accurate listings of the population and the people under their control, they would issue a decree where a census would be taking place, where the head of every household would have to go back to his place of origin, his, his hometown, if you would, and as he went back to his place of origin, the head of household, they would record the names and the family size and occupation and property and so forth. And this census was basically to help Rome tax the people more accurately, to make sure they weren't missing any tax money. So nothing new under the sun, all in the same generations. So this census forced the people to have to go back to be registered, it disrupted everybody's life. It meant higher taxes afterwards. Nobody was happy about that. They had to travel from long distances sometime if they were away from their home, uh, if you would, city where they were up, you know, brought up at. But the government decreed it, and if the government decreed it, you did not resist the Roman Empire. So that's why verse 3 tells us that all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, as these events happen, it just so forces this young couple, Mary and Joseph, at this point to have to make a decision to return to a particular location to the area of Bethlehem where Joseph was from. What is interesting to keep in mind is this direction it forces the couple to have to go circumstantially was something God was orchestrating for his higher purposes. 
as God was aligning things ultimately for what he wanted to come to pass and really what would be best for their personal interest as well. Look at verse four. It says, so Joseph also went up from Galilee, that is the city or the region of Galilee, which that would be in the northern area. It says from the area of Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, that's where they were at at the time, into Judea, that's down in the southern territory of Israel, the Judean area. And he went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So he goes back to his hometown to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So take note, here we have the providential hand of God clearly seen and involved in this whole situation that's happening in earthly affairs. Because hundreds of years prior to these days, God had predicted, we might say God had prophesied, spoken in advance in Micah chapter 5, we have it in the Old Testament, that the Messiah, that is God's savior that he would send to the world, the deliverer, the one they were waiting for that God promised, God had predicted in Micah chapter five that when the Messiah came, he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter five, verse two, the prophecy says this, but you Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you, shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth, notice, are from old, from everlasting. Now, what's interesting, keep in mind, as God selects the parents to have stewardship over his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God doesn't select a couple who's currently living in Bethlehem. God selects a couple who's currently living in in Nazareth. That's 80 miles away. Now, that creates a little bit of a dilemma, if you would. Here's the parents that God selects to have stewardship over his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are 80 miles off the mark. Hold on a minute there. Is it possible God overlooked something? Did he maybe fail to check his files there? Is it possible maybe somehow God wasn't keeping track of things? Sometimes that's how we feel when things go on that don't line up right away in our lives. Maybe God's just overlooked what's going on in my life. Maybe he's just not interested, doesn't love me enough to care about what's going on in my life. No, 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 that's not the case at all. God's fully aware of everything that's going on. You just don't see how it lines up yet. Give God time. Give God time. So here they are, 80 miles off course, if you would. There's a human situation, a problem to solve, but that never phases God because God just always finds the avenue that he needs to orchestrate ultimately what is best for those that he loves and to bring about his purposes. He needed to get Mary with Jesus in her womb, pregnant Mary, to Bethlehem so that prophecy could be accurately fulfilled so that God could maintain his 100% credibility and reliability rating. Because God fulfilled over 300 predictions in the first coming of Jesus alone. So God embraces a good challenge to solve it in his wisdom and in his power. He delights to do that because then he gets all the glory. And then people recognize, wow, it's amazing how God ultimately took that and brought about that. But then people see how wonderful God is and his power and his wisdom. So God uses, what does he do? He uses very natural, ordinary events. He actually uses the decree and the issue 
uh, issued a register of a national leader at that time, some legislation, if you would. He just, just uses ordinary, everyday events that were already happening in the world to bring about his ultimate purposes. You know, God didn't have to do some incredible, unique thing all the time, some amazing miracle. God just used everyday affairs, and he coordinated and tweaked and pulled strings and connected dots, and he was superintending over all those things, and he still brought the pass exactly we wanted. I love how God at times can work in very supernaturally natural ways. So often I think we miss the way that God is working because we're expecting some marvelous thing. I want to see the handwriting on the wall. People say, oh, can I see some handwriting on the wall like Daniel saw? Well, listen, let me remind you. When, when the handwriting showed up on the wall, that was a bad thing. So be careful with that one. God would much more prefer he just work in simple, direct ways, and we respond and we cooperate. So in a very natural way, God issues this decree. The heart of the emperor is moved to issue a decree. And what does that do? That causes Joseph and Mary to get to just the right place, Bethlehem. It says they went up to Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David. So God coordinated where Joseph would be born, knowing these events would happen years and years down the road. God didn't make a mistake letting Joseph be born where he was born and the family he was born. God didn't make a mistake for you to be born in the family you were born into. You may think that. Don't think that. You were born right where you were born, where you were, and all those things God can ultimately use for his best in your life if you don't let them stumble and distract you. And God here gets them to the right place at just the right time where he needs them to be. Proverbs chapter 21 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. If need be, God can even move the heart of people at times to produce what he needs to come to pass. So on the surface, it does. If you look at the events on the surface, as all this is happening, it looks like everything's revolving around the rule of Caesar when the reality is everything is revolving around the ultimate plan of God because God controls the affairs of this life. And whether it is simple, everyday affairs of my life or your personal experiences, or whether it is world affairs that are taking place, at the end of the day, God can work all those things together for his plans. God allows things at times to happen. God lets humanity make decisions. He's given us a free will. He doesn't force himself upon us or control us like robots. God has given us the freedom to make choices and decisions. He allows a measure of freedom for people to, to do things and make decisions. And yet in his wisdom and his power and his patience, somehow in his loving kindness, he still then uses all those things going on in the world, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he connects all these dots and pulls all these strings. Can you imagine? And he pulls all the strings to make everything still come out ultimately according to what he knows would be best and ultimately really even for our best interests and welfare. God can orchestrate earthly circumstances to bring about what he wants in the end. Ephesians 1 says it this way. It says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. How comforting to know that. How comforting to rest in a world where it looks like things are off the rails sometimes. And I imagine if we were just to take a quick census 
of just the drama in this room of our lives, our upbringings, our experiences and all that and to realize God can take all of that craziness and drama and personal decisions and yet still make it all work according to the counsel of his will. The Bible even promises us, right, as those who know and love the Lord and serve the Lord, that he can bring about what's best. Romans chapter 8, we all know it. It tells us that we can be confident of this very thing, that God himself is working all things together for our good. All things. No matter what has happened, our mistakes, our bad experiences, the good things that happen in life, all things, like a master chemist, God ultimately makes them work out for our good if we love him and we serve him. It's a promise to the child of God that if you know him this morning and you serve him, that he will make anything that happens in your life ultimately somehow he can bring it to pass for something good. He can make something good out of it. What a wonderful thing that God can do. And so here in this scenario, as all this is unfolding, Joseph and Mary are going through this process, but again, Consider it from their humanity, how it's playing out on their end. They don't know all this. They haven't read the story. They didn't read Luke chapter 2. Oh, that's how it's going to work out in the end. They didn't have that. They're living this experience out. This decree went forth. Consider what it meant for them. Joseph must now go to Bethlehem, his ancestral city. I'm sure this came out in one conversation. I am sorry, honey. This is a bad time. I mean, imagine this decree goes forth. It's already something that they don't enjoy as Jewish people to have to go through. He has to go to Bethlehem. He's not going to leave Mary behind who's pregnant with the child all the more because that child is the son of God within her womb, they know. So he says, look, Mary, if I got to go, you're going to have to come with me. And, And so at this point now, again, Keep in mind, they have to travel in that day. There were no nice cars, no trains, no short flights. This was either on foot or on the back of a donkey, 80 miles through the hills and the valleys of Samaria to ultimately, after a few-day journey on a donkey or walking, that they would end up in Bethlehem where they needed to be. Now, any person in this room has ever gone through the pregnancy process before, whether female or a husband alongside that, you know that's really difficult and bad timing. Because you're looking at that and saying, well, honey, uh, do you want to walk or you want to do the donkey? <laughs> I know it's third trimester, so I'm going to let you pick. I'm not going to look at Jess. What do you want to do? It's 80 miles. It's going to take us a few days. How do you want to bring that to pass? And so they literally have to go through. This whole thing looks like really, really bad timing. And as God's will is unfolding and they have to go to be registered, it says Joseph, verse 5, went to be registered there with Mary's betrothed wife, who was with child. The Holy Spirit wants us to recognize that. What was going on for them? And the point I want you to take note of is God's will was unfolding in their personal lives, folks. It was not automatically easy. It wasn't just smooth sailing. Sometimes we think that. Oh, as God's will is unfolding, that means if it's God's will, it's going to be smooth sailing. It means life's going to be easy. In fact, it involved, notice, tremendous disruption to their present comfortability. It was something that 
caused them to go through difficult and questionable circumstances. They were forced through some hard experiences. They were inconvenienced. It required some personal sacrifice to follow out God's will. Yet despite all that, they were directly on course with God's best for their life. Be very, very careful and don't ever let your mind buy into or let the words of other people convince you that just because you're going through difficulty, something must be wrong in your life. Oh, you must be lacking faith. Or maybe you sinned somewhere and you got to go find out what your sin was. Look, I know sometimes we make poor choices and painful consequences come, but usually nobody has to convince me of that. When I've created a self-inflicted trial, I know right away, right? You do too. But sometimes we go through a difficulty or a hardship and we have the lying voice of the devil trying to us, well, you're going through this really hard time and, and, and then it makes us start to question. Look, they were going through a very hard time. They were right in line with God's will. They were right in the center of God's will. And I think we need to remember that God's will and following God's plan is not a guarantee of constant ease. It's not a guarantee that things will always just be comfortable and no difficulty. Oftentimes, when God's will unfolds, we may have to journey through some tough valleys. We may have to go through some challenging things. Following the purpose of God may bring a disruption to our life or challenge our faith or bring temporal circumstances that are inconvenient or that require major changes in our life. The Bible teaches, listen, folks, that the will of God is not the way of comfort. The Bible teaches that the will of God is the way of a cross, not the way of comfort. American Christianity today would like to tell people that the will of God is the way of comfort. Biblical Christianity would teach us that the will of God is the way of the cross. Much, much different. And so important that we keep ourselves in proper perspective. God doesn't give us assurance of ease but he does tell us that the experiences of life are what make us long for the assurance of heaven to one day get beyond the difficult world and to experience eternal life. So perhaps the first coming of Jesus was even, in a sense, purposely trying to convey some of that reality as Mary and Joseph are going through these personal hardships in their life. Well, if things weren't challenging enough, look what unfolds next. It says, verse 6, And so it was that while they were there, the days were then completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Take note of that. The Bible teaches not the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Bible teaches she was a virgin when she conceived and gave birth to Jesus, but then afterwards she was not a perpetual virgin. Her and Joseph had natural relations and children afterwards. So she brings forth now her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So in two short verses, the Bible records the events here of the birth record of Jesus as he came into this world. After managing to make it through, if it weren't hard enough, the difficult 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they get there finally... And they probably had no idea that the challenges were just beginning. But verses 6 and 7 indicate that that's what starts to happen now. Because notice, at this point, it says she begins now to go and labor. Verse 5 says she makes the journey with child. And then verse 6 says that while they were then there, the days now were completed for her to be delivered. The idea is Mary's going into labor now. The labor pains 
are starting at this point. The baby is coming, and circumstances are not probably what they planned for the birth process or what they would have preferred. Notice, if you would, at the end of verse 7, first of all, it tells us that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, when the Bible speaks of no room in the inn as a lodging place, that's not talking about, like, the comfort inn, the holiday inn. It's not even talking about, like, a really rustic ancient motel like you see on a cowboy movie. In fact, the word inn that's used there is the word caravanzeri, and what it's a reference to is how in that ancient culture there— They would have these four-walled enclosures, no roof on top, just four walls with a door, an opening, but just a four-walled enclosure, no roof. Usually there was maybe a, a, a water source or a well in the middle and maybe a fire pit area, and it was a space that would be rented out to travelers, something that you could at least enter into at night. You were safe from wild animals. You were basically able to be out of the wind blowing. But even that, quite a rustic environment there. But notice, even in that place, in the caravanzeri, in the inn, there was still no room available, apparently, for Mary and Joseph to be able to lodge there. Very likely because of the fact that all the lodging facilities being overbooked with all the census traveling. Remember, everybody's moving all around the world, trying to get back to their hometown to be registered. And imagine Joseph in this process. It says there's no room for them in the inn, Mary is about to be delivered, and he's doing what every husband does. He is just trying the best he can to make the best out of this situation to take good care of his wife, right? So imagine Joseph. I mean, here he is. He's dealing with going around, getting concerned. He can't find a space, somewhere for them to lodge at. Eventually, probably I envision something like this happens. Somebody says to him, realizing what's going on, her in labor, him being stressed, they're trying to resolve the situation. Somebody ultimately says, look, if you at least want some space, something, just anything, he says, somewhere to rest, I got a stable area. It's better than nothing. At least you're not out in the elements and among the wild animals. If you at least just want somewhere with a little privacy for some dignity for the young lady so that she can bring about This child, I have a stable area. It's the best that I could offer you. And as the unstoppable labor process is happening, they're stuck in unpleasant circumstances. They have got to be stressed out, looking to heaven with questions and struggles, just like you and I would be. Thinking to themselves, we know this is God's will. We know we're doing what God told us to do. Why is this happening? Why are things so hard? Why is it so hard right now? And just like you and I, their faith is being tested. They're struggling to have to depend upon God. Things are unfolding in ways they didn't expect them to. Things are happening that are harder than what they maybe even ever experienced, and they're going through hardship. But consider, again, the biblical record of the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph, it says, bring forth Mary's firstborn son there, It says, and they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So again, as the Bible portrays what literally happened when Jesus Christ entered into our world into humanity, when God came to dwell among us, do you notice what God tells us honestly took place? Mary and Joseph in less than ideal conditions, to say the least, without the help of any doctors, no nurses, no midwives, no medical equipment, 
no bed on a dirty barn floor or cave, dirt floor, they brought forth as a frightened, newly married young couple, this child into the world. And it says, and then they laid him, after wrapping him in swaddling cloths, swaddling cloths were usually the strips of cloth they would use to to wrap up to embalm the dead. How fitting. Because what was Jesus born for? To die. And they wrap him up in swaddling cloths, and it says they laid him. Do you see what it says there, verse 7? They laid him in a manger. Now, often we think of manger as that little cute house in our manger scenes, right? That word manger, honestly, is a reference to a feeding trough. It's talking about the crib that Jesus had first and foremost. They took Jesus, and they laid him in an animal feeding trough filled with a remnant of saliva and bacteria and filth from food and an animal's mouth going in there, multiple animals. Now, I don't know about you. I'll be the first to admit this morning. I don't have a ton of farm experience. But what I do know, little as I do know, every animal stall I've ever seen is not usually smelling too good. And it is certainly not the most hygienic place to give birth to a child, especially to the Son of God. And yet this is what the Bible tells us. Amazing. If I were God, I would have picked a much different approach. I truly would have. I mean, if I were God and I were bringing my son into the world, the king of kings, I would have chose the biggest city, the best pediatric staff, the most experienced team of OBGYNs and nurses, the best labor and delivery rooms. I mean, born in a palace, not a hospital, you know. But yet God allows his son to be born to two frightened, poor parents on a barn floor and laid in a filthy, bacteria-filled feeding trough of animals. That's the way God allows his son to come into the world. I don't want to speculate, but I would guess to say that probably every one of us in this room has had a better birth than that a better start than that. Why in the world would God allow Jesus to have such a lowly and despised birth and come into the human world so humbly, so lowly? Perhaps because, above all else, God wants Jesus to be completely approachable to anyone. Not just Americans, but people in the worst conditions on the same ball of dirt that Jesus died for just as much as for you and I. So that anyone could look at Jesus in that humility. He had a more lowly and despised beginning than most people in humanity. I mean, just consider some of the things of even Jesus' life. Jesus grew up under the stigma of a questionable pregnancy. People with speculation looked upon Mary at first, and maybe even it seems after Jesus was born, as a child that was just born out of wedlock. Jesus grew up with the experience of having a step-parent. Joseph was not his biological father. Joseph was his step-parent. He grew up with a step-parent. Historians tell us that Joseph even likely died when Jesus was around 12 years old, it's believed, which means Jesus, for a time, also was raised in a single-parent home. We know as well, regarding Jesus' life, he was raised in a rough city, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was raised in a rough city, poor conditions, not in a palace, He even had family dysfunction because his family said, he's crazy. 
They didn't believe him. They didn't even like him, it seems. He had some family dysfunction. He was mistreated in his humanity. Perhaps some of those scenarios describe your life. My point in bringing that up is Jesus understands. I can't say I 100% always understand, and maybe no one else can, but there's one in heaven who loves you that's looking upon you that says, I understand that. Because he came as a man, he lived as a human being, and it says he experienced everything we do as people. Difficulty, hardship, temptation, pain, suffering. It says he was even acquainted with grief. Jesus experienced all types of human hardship, came in a humble way so that he might be able to help us. Look, maybe you're here this morning, and perhaps right now your situation is less than ideal. Maybe it's not what you prefer. Maybe you're going through hard circumstances and painful situations. Perhaps even Christmas this season just amplifies all the pain. And it just makes the struggle even more difficult. Hey, rather than let it just bury you, can I encourage you? Jesus can help you because he understands pain and struggle and difficulty and human hardship better than anyone. He came and experienced it. And the Bible tells us that Jesus endured all those things and he overcame them all victoriously. And therefore, that means that he can give us the victory over those things that we can't seem to find ourselves. If you let him be involved in your life, he'll help you triumph over those things. He'll give you the grace and his presence, even as the companionship to go through it. The tragedy is these actual circumstances of the birth of Jesus here in our text in many ways are a fitting picture of what still happens as people respond to Jesus. What does it say at the end of verse 7, if I could draw your attention there? It says, there was no room for the Lord, ultimately, not just Mary and Joseph. There was no room for him, Jesus, in the inn. What a fitting picture. The first time Jesus came to earth, there was no room for him busyness with all these other things and preoccupation with this and that and all this human activity going on caused the Lord, if you would, to be crowded out, to be brushed aside, to be ignored, to be pushed aside. Today, oftentimes people simply still in their lives don't have room for Jesus. You know, it's amazing. We can fill up our lives with all kinds of other stuff, all kinds of other stuff. I mean, our lives are full. We, we, we almost feel somehow that's a, a mark of, of honor in America, too. I mean, well, my life is so full. I know you called me seven days ago or texted me 14 days ago, but I'm busy. Busy. I'm an American. I'm busy. We almost take pride in it. First of all, nobody's that busy. That's rude in case that's you. Just, just a helper there. Free counsel. <laughs> but as Americans, as Americans, we, we pride ourselves in all this busyness. I don't have room for this and room for that and room for this. And then we wonder why we're stressed out and depressed and have major high suicide rates and why we're turning to all these wrong coping mechanisms of drugs and alcohol. And, and I mean, we're keeping the pharmaceutical business in industry. And we're turning to all these other things. And we have room for all these other things. But we don't have no room for the Lord Jesus in our lives. That's what our hearts were made for, man. Our hearts were made for the Lord, for his presence, for what he brings to help us and give us peace. And uh, you see, the greater tragedy is when someone even recognizes that and then they refuse to remove from their life what they need to remove to make some room for Jesus. That's probably even a bigger tragedy is when they refuse to give room 
to Jesus. Sometimes even difficulty and loss is what God may use in our lives sometimes to see us how much we really need the Lord and to make us open up our lives a little bit more to the Lord and the value. Maybe Jesus is standing on the outside and he's kind of knocking on the door saying, could you make a little room for me in your life? Please? You know, maybe you're here this morning as a Christian and maybe this last year, maybe this last year, a lot of things have kind of kind of crowded out the Lord and his place of priority and importance in your life. Can I encourage you? Make some room for Jesus. That'd be a great Christmas gift to give the Lord. Make room for Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and honestly, you're not yet a Christian. And maybe you need to open the door of your heart for the first time to Jesus. And for the first time, you need to realize that he came to save his people from their sins. And the only thing that's missing from your life is not some status or position or this thing you're chasing and chasing. What's missing from your life is the Lord, because that's what would complete you on the inside. And the only thing that stands between you and the Lord having access to your life is the sin that we all have in our lives. And all you need to do is recognize your sinfulness and that you're ruling on the throne of your heart and Jesus isn't. And Jesus could be standing at the door of your heart knocking, saying, if you hear my voice, open the door, I'll come in. But the knob's on the inside. We have to be willing to open the door and allow Jesus access. He's a gentleman. But he wants to forgive your sin. He wants to take away your guilt and shame. He wants to rid you from the ultimate eternal punishment of hell, which is where we will go if we die still in our sinful condition. And he wants to give you the gift of eternal life, which is the assurance of heaven, access into heaven. But you have to be willing to open your heart to him. I think of Mary and Joseph. They're going through some real difficult times, hard experiences. Everybody else is preoccupied. Looks like their life's really difficult. But you know what? The reality is they actually had what mattered most. They had Jesus. They had right there the answer to the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of heaven. It was well with their soul. They were having the best Christmas. And you know what? Folks, life's not always easy. I know I'm not telling you something we don't know. And I know sometimes even the holidays can be challenging. But I'll tell you this. If you have Jesus in your life, and you know how to have your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, and you've experienced the forgiveness of your sins, and you have the hope and the assurance of heaven after you die, it's well with your soul. That gives us plenty of reason to still have a merry Christmas. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.